started. I've been working on this voice all morning, and it hasn't cleared up yet. <coughs> Let's go ahead and get started. Please open your Bibles to 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5. We have been studying the um, how, how do we live in the last days. And we started with the Olivet Discourse. We've got uh, a lot of classes on Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, the Olivet Discourse. Then from there we went into James and took a look at the passages in James 5 that deal with the last days because all of these talk about the last days and then they start giving us how do we live because it's, it's one thing to know we're in the last th- days. It's another thing to know what to do in the last days. And this is a great section in Second Peter 1 on what do we do? What do we do in the last days? We went from there to Second Timothy 3, and those passages all start out in the last days people will be, and then it describes what's, what's going on. We see also that in the last days it's a time to gather up a, a lot of special rewards. That was Second Timothy chapter 4. And now we've moved to Second Peter, and we're going to look at the whole book of Second Peter because chapter 2 and 3 are clearly prophecy, and chapter 1 is kind of sandwiched there in the middle of prophetic statements. So what do we, what do, we do? Well, this is telling us. In the last days, which is known for its corruption, it's known for its darkness, it's known for uh, all kinds of things that aren't good. In the last days, we're supposed to live a life of virtue. And what is virtue? Because we have to stop and remind ourselves of that because the, the world has been masters at turning it around and twisting it around. And so we're going to go back through it. We'll let the Bible tell us what virtue is, and then we're going to uh, hopefully leave here and apply it to our own lives. So let's take just a minute for prayer and be sure that we are ready to look into the Word of God. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we thank you for your blessings, your tests, your opportunities. We just thank you for your love for us and the fact that uh, we are now your kids through faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for giving us this portion of your word that tells us really what you expect of us, what you hope to see. And I pray that we would view it as Paul did to want to do that which is well-pleasing in your eyes. So we pray that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand this portion, that he would enlighten us, challenge us, convict us where we need it, and not let us forget it after we leave here. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have seen in this in this passage um, about, and it says, for this very reason also, uh, having added all diligence. Now, having added all diligence means that we have made a honest effort to do something, we have a zeal about it, and we're trying to accomplish it. We're trying to get it done uh, quickly and uh, rapidly. He says, in your faith, okay, supply, abundantly supply, the virtue. Now, <clears throat> that was point six last week. I know it wasn't on the handouts last week. Somehow it uh, got omitted by the person that puts together the handouts, which is me. So, Point six wasn't there, but it's there now with all the blanks filled in. Some of you wrote frantically whenever you started hearing the points, but it's, there are only four of them, thankfully for that. But uh, 
See, God sets the standard of virtue. It's not the it's not the world. It is not public opinion, and it hasn't got anything to do with politicians. God sets the standard of virtue, and He places His basic standards inside of all of us, so that so that they're a matter of conscience. Uh, the passage in Romans chapter two is very revealing. It is very theologically important because it says that everybody knows there's an issue of right and wrong. And they know that some things are just inherently wrong. And, and that's part of us. Everybody knows that. Be it Jew or Gentile. And that's how he brings it in. He says even the Gentiles who don't have the law, they know the law. It's written on their hearts. They know the difference between right and wrong. And everybody knows that they have sinned. Uh, except some of them don't call it sin. And then they get kind of confused about that. And they... Um, uh, get all mixed up and they say well there is no such thing as sin when actually there is and everybody knows there is that's part of why the gospel the greek word literally means proclaim good it's good news and that's because we all know a whole lot about bad news already now virtue requires consistent thoughtful consideration of the elements what goes into virtue and that's what Paul writes about in Philippians 4.8. If there, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good reputation, if there is any virtue, the word they, the English, they brought it in, New American Standard is excellence, but it is a word that means virtue. Those things that are inherently, intrinsically good. And if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. See, and then how easy is it to think about all the bad in the world? It's hard to avoid it, isn't it? But actually thinking about the bad can become an addiction. It can become an addiction. We become so critical in our thoughts, <clears throat> analytical in our searches, that we stop looking for the good. And he told us several passages, examine everything carefully in First Thessalonians. Hold fast to what's good. So look for the good when you start looking at things. Because if you're going to look at the world, all you're going to see is bad. That's all you're going to see if you just let your sin nature do the looking. But we need to let the Spirit of God do the looking. Then we'll be able to see some good stuff that's that's going on. There's some good things going on that uh, we've got going on recently by the grace of God. Another translation of Foundations was just completed. We are very excited about it because it's going to go into um, parts of Iran. It's going to go into uh, parts of Turkey. It is a language that has about 40 million people that can read it. And the Christians up there wanted to do it and wanted to translate it. And we were able to, to work a deal out, and we just got the translation in this last week. And what a blessing, because there are people, that's, that's some of the good. There's a whole lot of bad going on in that part of the world, isn't there? But instead of looking at the bad, we can say, now they've got an opportunity to learn some about the good. And in that, we can, we can rejoice. But we need to think about what is good. Because the world will convince us that what we're thinking about is good is not good. Look at everything they've tried, they've gone after over the last few years. Somehow marriage is no good. Somehow families are no good. 
They've gone after everything that God has established. They say the word of God is no good. It's not accurate, it's not trustworthy, it's unreliable, and so they go after that. And if you start listening to the world, then you're going to get wrapped up in it. It's the cares and everyday entanglements in the parable of the sower that comes out and it drags us down. So we need to look for the good and think about what is right. And according to Paul and Thessalonians, we need to hang on to what is right. Now, from the blessings God has given us, we should proclaim his virtue. This is where they, where they come from, from 1 Peter 2.9. You are a chosen race. Notice the singular in there. There's the human race, and now we are special by being believers in Jesus Christ. It has nothing to do with skin color. It has everything to do with relationship. We, believers, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is different because it was not a royal priesthood in previous dispensations. A holy nation. Now the Jews had been called out and they certainly didn't quite do it, but he's saying basically the Christians that are scattered all over the earth are a nation to themselves and one of these days we're going to have a capital city. And Abraham looked for it. Hebrews chapter 11. Just read that. Abraham was looking for the city whose architect and builder was God. See, he, he knew there was something better. So it's a nation right now scattered out that one day is going to be part of the millennial kingdom led by the Lord. <clears throat> he says, A people for God's own possession so that you can proclaim the excellencies again as our word virtue. It is the virtue that God possesses. It is his righteousness. It is his justice, his impartiality, his, his unchangeable nature. So you can proclaim, if there's any virtue in anything worthy of prayer, he says, you can proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We forget that, don't we? Isn't that a good thing to think about? See, we could continue to walk around in darkness like the rest of those in unbelief, but he's called us out of that. He said, hey, the light's over here. Come find it. It's amazing how you can see a, uh, you can see a light from a long way off, and the darker the, darker the night, the, the greater it is. In the southern tip of India on Cape Cormoran, <coughs> there was a, that's where three oceans come together. They had a, an idle lighthouse there at one time, back several centuries ago. And this idle lighthouse had an idol that had a, the, a diamond that was large enough that they set a candle in front of the diamond and it served to tell the ships where they were getting ready to come ashore. It was the lighthouse. And then the British took it, diamond disappeared, Lighthouse was built, like we know lighthouses. But it doesn't take a whole lot to light up a, a, a big area. And that particular thing did. It was the Temple of Shiva down on the southern tip of India. And it was the, uh, the idol, I call it the idol lighthouse. Now seven is where we left off. This is an interesting study. I've just been going back through 1 Timothy. As I've been going through all the books, I'm in 1 Timothy and I got stuck. That's why you didn't get one a new book last weekend. Because in 1 Timothy, it's not that it's hard, it's there's so much of it. 
almost every word in First Timothy is a doctrinal study to itself. And so I thought, well, do I pare it down or do I just leave it all there? And so I chose to leave it. So there's a lot of it to go, but it's over 200 pages of notes that have gone into this and it is it has got the verses it's got them identified it's got greek words identified in it and i thought i'll just leave it in there because it's so important in in the how then shall we live but point seven in the sphere of our faith and virtue remember we have a bunch of circles concentric circles we have a target like one you'd shoot a bow and arrow at and in the outer ring is diligence Okay, that's in the outer ring. And then add virtue. And then what's it do? It keeps saying in the sphere of, in the sphere of, in the sphere of. And so it keeps making smaller circles. And it's drawing us to a target. And the target, you you could probably guess, the, the next to smallest circle is the love of your neighbor. And the smallest one is the love of God. And that's, the, that's what we're shooting for. That's, that's how we're supposed to live. Now, in the sphere of faith and virtue, see, we're supposed to have faith in the one who can provide salvation. Virtue is where we start off, and that's something that even the Gentiles know what it is. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. So you add what you know to be right. We should add the knowledge you find this definite article in front of all these words in this list from Peter. The knowledge. So it says it's not just any old knowledge, doesn't it? It's a special knowledge. It sets it off as important. And it involves a greater exposure to and a comprehension of the God. We want the knowledge to go with the God. Now, <clears throat> we should get these first two things right faith and virtue before we begin and how about virtue any ongoing sins in your life confess them first john 1 9 okay we need to deal with those the way that god has biblically taught us to deal with them and then we move on so it's kind of telling us before we study the word okay get your faith right get your virtue right start studying okay knowledge now There's some interesting quotes about knowledge. Uh, Thomas Aquinas uh, was was said to be the most saintly of the learned and the most learned of the saints. So they viewed him in his time as a very uh, smart individual that knew what he was talking about. Uh, Joseph Crutch says, What man knows is everywhere is at war with what he wants. That's true, isn't it? What we know is often at war with what we want. Thomas Edison said, we don't know one millionth of one percent of anything. <laughs> and I thought, that's a good place to start, isn't it? That's a good place to... We really are not as smart as we think we are. Have, 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 we, have we ever considered that? I know you've considered it in other people. <laughs> we all do. <laughs> it's part of the sin nature. We look at other people and we're smart by comparison. And there's somebody always dumber in a post out there that you can find to compare yourself with and lift yourself up. And that's that's not really Christian, is it? <laughs> that's not. We'll see that as we go through this. But we don't know. None of us know nearly what we think we know. So we need to keep keep learning. Um, 
someone unknown said there's too many experts and not enough examples. Well, that's that's true. Um, Confucius. So, oh, he's gone crazy. He's quoting Confucius here. But occasionally there's something right that comes out. Uh, and it's he says to know that we know what we know and that we do not know what we do not know. That's true knowledge. <laughs> Have you ever been asked a question and you just kind of make it up as you go? The answer Okay, Confucius says if you're really smart, if you don't know it, you'll say you don't know. That's a good thing to say. <clears throat> Irenaeus, early church historian, no man can know God unless God has taught him. And that is to say that without God, God cannot be known. So you want to find out about him? You have to go to him and see what he's got to say. Now, <clears throat> knowledge of Christ... It's what is needed so a person can be saved. This is where we start. You can't be saved if you don't know the object of your faith. Because faith requires an object. And the object is where the merit is. So we have to know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Luke 177. Part of the reason he came here and part of the, the song of Mary and Elizabeth to give to his people the knowledge of salvation. And we're looking basically here at Gnosis. The knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. So knowledge of salvation is where we all must start. Now in God's design we must be willing to do his will to actually know that what we know is from him. I uh, When I first uh, decided I was going to find out all I could find out about God and I started studying and I started wanting to learn the original languages and all of those things <clears throat> and and I was I thought at one time it was basically all about knowledge it's about how much doctrine I could get and cram into my soul and that's what made me mature and then after I get through seminary and I decide I'm going to teach the word and we we're taught to teach Line upon line, precept upon precept, written directly out of the original languages. And you start teaching through some things, and you end up at the Gospel of John. And John, you hit in John chapter 5, and it says, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them, the scriptures, you have eternal life. But it is these scriptures that bear witness of me. Now that told me something that I just couldn't shake. Okay, I, I, the scriptures reveal Christ. The scriptures are not Christ. Some people think that their knowledge is what saves them. Now it's the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and their faith in him. That's what saved. And then I kept reading in John and I got to 7.17. Because <clears throat> at one point in time I thought... All I needed to do was study, 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 study. But then it said, if any man is willing to do his will. This is Jesus talking again to the Pharisees. If any man is willing to do his will. And I saw a disconnect a long time ago when I first became a pastor in between knowledge and application. Knowing what to do and doing it. 
And the breakdown was in the application. Now, the, he says, if any man is willing to do his will. So if you're going to willing to do it, you have to know what it is. But it doesn't stop with knowing what it is. Willing to do his will. He says, this is an if-then clause. If you meet this condition, that you're willing to live it, says, then he shall know of the teaching. And it it hit me. It took a while to get through because I'm hard-headed. But it hit me that I need to be willing to live this Christian life if I ever really want to know what it is. Okay? And that's really what a disciple is. A disciple is one who's trying to get their life in tune with their understanding. That's a disciple. And so that's what we are called to be. So if he's, he says, and this is Jesus saying, whether it is of God or I speak for myself. What? He is God. He was giving them a test though. John chapter 7, John 8, he tells them who he is. Before Abraham was, I am. But now he's giving them a test. And he said, from, from my humanity... He's saying, does it come from the Father Almighty or does it come from my humanity? Am I just another man? Am I just another person out here claiming to be a prophet? Who am I? He says, if you want to be willing to do what God's will is, then you're going to know. Until you put it to the test in your own life, you're never really going to know for sure. And so those two verses played a big role in getting me to stop and think. It's not just enough to know his word. That is extremely important. But it doesn't need to stop there. Now, God has given us the knowledge of his glory. From 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which says, For God who said, Light shall shine out of the darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. <clears throat> so what happens when you believe in Christ? You're given his glory. And what comes with that glory? Light. Have you ever seen anything glorious that, that you couldn't see? That was dimly lit? Well, he is full bore glory that says no one can look upon him. It takes, it's going to take a special body for us to see Jesus as he, as he really is in all of his glory as the God-man seated on the throne. It's going to take a new body for us to be able to do that and see him and appreciate it. He's given us the knowledge of his glory. What is his glory all about? Boy, that's a whole different doctrine, isn't it? We could go into and spend a lot of time on it. You try to picture him seated on the at the right hand of the Father, up in, in heaven's throne, with the 40 million angels out around him singing, and the 24 elders, the four living creatures, and you take this picture of what the Scripture gives to us, and you go, now that's glory if ever there was, if ever there was. All the treasures of knowledge are in Christ Himself. We find warnings several places in the New Testament about getting sucked into the empty philosophies of man, the different worldviews that don't work. And you have to have some idea of what they are. Um, the uh, uh, book on the back table there, um, George is sitting next to it. I think we've only got one left. But it deals with various worldviews. 
and what they what they believe. You you need to have some idea of what people are thinking and what the world is using, so you can know the tools that the devil has at his disposal. I received something yesterday that absolutely, when I first read it, I thought, this can't be right. And so then I started tracking it down, and indeed it is right. Uh, are any of you aware of uh, the UN um, COP27 meeting that is going to take place a week from today in Mount Sinai, Egypt? Now, isn't this an interesting thing? And I started looking on it. It's a climate conference, is what it is. Who's coming together for this climate conference? There are going to be Christians, although I'd wonder if they're really Christians. There are going to be Jews, and there are going to be Muslims. And they're going to come together at Mount Sinai and put together the Ten Commandments of Climate Justice. This is to establish a one world religion. This is what they want to do. And it's going to be the worship of the created rather than the creator. Now this is already in the mill. It's, it's already in the plans. They're going to undergo there a ceremony of repentance. This means that these three world religions. And, and you say well where are the Hindus? That was my first question. And I thought the Hindus are already there. They already worship Mother Nature, Mother Earth. They, it's what they do. It's an inherent part of their religion. So does the Buddhist, that same type of thing. So they've got the rest of the uh, monotheist, if you will. They're going to come together and join in with the polytheist in an interfaith conference. And they are going to teach people how to worship Mother Earth. That's what's coming up next week. And I'm sure we'll probably hear about it. More to come. I'll be curious to see exactly what the Ten Commandments are. But I think they're emblazoned in the idols down there uh, on the southern tip of India in that Hindu temple down there that I've mentioned several times. Because it's all, it is the, the modern ec- ecology movement. And by the way, they're printing their own Echo Bible. They're going to have their own ecology Bible for everybody to follow. Now, do you think maybe the might be about time for the Lord to come back? Looks like it is to me. Everything is in place. I don't know how I could get more in place for the events of the tribulation. I really don't. And yet it is here it is all coming together. And what are they going to need coming out of this conference? They're going to need a leader. They're going to need somebody that can come in and take charge and take control and implement all this stuff that they're already trying to do. All the treasures of knowledge, the real treasures of knowledge are found in Christ himself from Colossians 2. Verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, And for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts might be encouraged, having been knit together in love, attaining all the wealth that comes from the full knowledge of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, mysterion, that is, 
Christ himself. I read books that talk about the mystery of God and they get off into Never Never Land and write hundreds of pages about it and never seem to say the mystery is Christ. That's where it resolves. That's what the verse says. Just go with the verse. The mystery is Christ himself. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our word. So people that, that just want knowledge for knowledge's sake and they're not seeking to know Christ better. It's a useless knowledge. We're going to see how that plays into the scheme of things. We're encouraged to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. Because in him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we're encouraged to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. 2 Peter 3. These are the two verses we'll end up with in our study of 2 Peter. He says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, lest you be carried away by the error of unprincipled men that he's just described in chapter 2 and 3. You fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is how Peter closes out his second and last epistle. We're encouraged to grow in the knowledge of our Lord. And how do we do that? We go right to the scriptures. We are talking this morning for church about some of the apocrypha and pseudepigraphal works that were done that are not biblical. And it's amazing how people want to add some of these things into, uh, into the scripture and consider them on the same level as scripture. The Apocrypha means they're writings alongside of, and that includes eight books that come out of the intertestamental period from 1st and 2nd Maccabees, Judith, Tobit, Esdras, and they are basically historical books. They were not included in the original canon because of historical errors that are found in them, known historical errors. So they didn't say. They said these can't be. Uh, these can't be inspired of God because they contain errors that we know about. And so those books were left out. Now, uh, the Catholics add them in, and that's part of the eight books that they've, they've got. I love the way Mario does it. Somebody tries to get him off on the, well, you leave eight books out of the Bible. He says, open your Bible to John 3.16. What does it say? Because that's the same in both Bibles. So he takes them to the place that talks about how you're going to be saved. And so <clears throat> we, we in the uh, pseudepigrapha, pseudo means lying, the lying writings, which means that there are known errors in. All the books of the New Testament were written in the first century. That's been known for a long, long time. The disciples knew it. John closed it out in the writing of Revelation, chapter 22. And it was passed on to some other students that were actually taught by John. And it was these other books that they've added weren't written in the first century. They were written in the second and third and fourth centuries. And some people wanted to include them in the canon. There is no, they are not canonical. They're called the lying writings. And this is where people start getting, getting off into different things. And they, they, these, these other books seem to add something to it. And actually, they're distracting and they take us in the wrong, wrong direction. So <clears throat> we're 
courage to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Knowing Christ is worth losing everything else. Philippians 3.8 To know Him. It's worth losing everything else. Paul writes, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them but rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. He's basically saying grow in Christ, because he's already a believer. He knows he's a believer. He's been spreading the gospel. When he writes Philippians, he's, he's been at this. It's been 30 years since the resurrection. So he, he is already a believer. He is already quite mature. And in a couple of verses later, he says, I forget what lies behind, and I press on to what lies ahead. And he's talking about maturity, and he says, not that I've already obtained it. Probably the most mature believer that ever lived. Probably the most knowledgeable believer that ever lived. And he said, I still got room to grow. Now, <clears throat> we can... we. And he, what did he say? What I have now is worth the loss of all things. And that's the way we as Christians should should view it. We we run into them overseas. We get testimonies from from them that <clears throat> the that they're willing to lose it all. Some of them have lost it all. Some of those missionaries today is the International Day of Prayer, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, Second session and the introduction there. Uh, Voice of the Martyrs. They have they have reached out to grab hold of people, and we've been able to see some of the things that that they have they have done, and they have got the right attitude. There, if somebody is being persecuted, they feel like they're over the target and receiving flack, and they're going to help people that are willing to stay there. They are helping people in persecuted areas all over the world. And that's honestly what they want to hear about. They want to know who is being persecuted for the cause of Christ. And then they're willing to help them. They don't want to go take them out of there. Don't we have a one of our first uh, tendencies is to flee? They want the people who are going to fight. That's what they're looking for. And they will support them in whatever way they can. Now, that is an honorable and noble mission. No, no two ways out around it. <clears throat> Knowing Christ is worth losing everything else. And many of the people that they work with feel just exactly that way. And many of them have lost everything else. We can never finish learning of Christ's love. <clears throat> have you uh, listened to preachers over the course of of your life and you hear all they talk about is love or all they talk about is justification all they talk about is propitiation all they talk about is redemption all they talk about and they get, get these words oh, I know all that why are we supposed to keep talking about it because it keeps coming up in the scripture. <laughs> if, if, and, and what is he talking about? How about love? I, not too long after I came to Oklahoma City, <clears throat> I had some um, deacons. I loved them all dearly. They all had, had uh, uh, 
good intentions in their heart and everything else and said, aren't you ever going to teach about something else besides love? And I said, well, if we ever get it right, maybe. <laughs> We're going to have to keep keep going. But what is, what is love about? Because the scripture tells us. Now, what about the love of Christ? Can we ever know all there is to know about it? Well, not according to scripture. He says, Paul writes, the Ephesian church, he's closing out the theology section here. And he says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is the indwelling of Jesus Christ. Christ being formed in you. It is faith going to faith. You keep continuing after salvation and believing in him. He says, and that you being rooted and grounded in love. Their word popped up again, didn't it? You being rooted and grounded in love. That's right at the foundation. May be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge here's our word the love of Christ is something that we can't quantify and put in a box it is not a formula it can't be done people say well gosh that's going to get emotional and I don't want to get emotional guess what I've, I've thought that at one time too I'll confess to that and admit that and I thought well we got to keep emotions out of love it's just a spiritual love it's a relaxed mental attitude it's all these other things and there was another verse kept hitting me actually a couple of them said the same thing love the Lord your God with all your heart soul mind and strength and in the soul as I understood the soul it contains emotions and so I'm thinking how can we move emotions out of that love whenever to love him with all of our soul includes our emotion. I had no good answer for it. So he says he wants us to love him with every single part of our being. He's the one who put emotions in us. So we should be able to love him in an emotional way as well as in an intellectual way. Now, <clears throat> loving him experientially puts those things together. He says... That you might be filled up to all the fullness of God. Filled up to all the fullness. Filling, plerao, is a word that looks at a process. It's kind of like <clears throat> kind of like we have cups. And as they go down again, they need refilled, right? How do you refill them? Poof, and they're full. They're full? No, <laughs> it's not the way it works, is it? You pour. That's what the word describes. Every way you look at it. Filled up to all the fullness of God is a process. And it's a process that involves learning in order to do so that we can grow closer to him. Pretty simple to describe. But a lifelong thing that we do to get closer to God. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. Okay. Is drawing near to God a process? I would think so because I have a sin nature. Now, I know all of you have laid it all aside in every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles and you have moved on. I'm not one of those that has. I still have a sin nature. And what gets between me and God? Me. Because I want things my way. 
I have a prayer list that's kind of like a grocery list of things I would like for him to do. And some of them he does. And I don't even notice it until it's already done, which is amazing. See, that draws me closer to him, just like it should draw all of us. Because we are, we are learning, we are growing, we are being filled to all the fullness of God. What, is, what does that mean? What do we look at earlier in Second Peter? Because he's sovereign, I can be content. He's in charge. I can be content with whatever I get. Because he's righteous and just, I should be fair. I should learn what those things are about. Walk in a righteous way, be fair to all I run into. Because he never changes. Oh, doesn't that bring comfort? He's not going to change his mind about something. Because he's truth, I can trust him. Because he's eternal life, I can have courage. Because what can man do to me? What, Paul, that was Paul. What can man do to me? Just like David said in Psalm 56. What can he do? He can kill me. Oh my, well that's not so bad. <laughs> when you stop thinking, start thinking about it. You know, he's in jail. He's in prison. He's chained up. And he goes, yeah, it didn't matter. They're talking about killing me. That's okay. I can go be with the Lord. Or they're talking about leaving me here. That's okay too. I can continue to tell people about him. So they didn't have any power over him whatsoever. That's the way we should live live our lives. We can never finish learning of Christ's love. And see, this love is beyond intellectual perception. Didn't the Bible just say that? We can't put him in a box and keep him in there and think we know all there is to know about God. It's a mistake to do that. I used to try to put God in a box and he kept getting out of it. You know, we'd like him, we'd like to be able to put God in a box, set him on our mantle. And whenever we need something, we go get the box off the mantle and we pull it down and open it up and go, now what do we have here? Much like a Christmas present. He will not stay in a box. You can't keep him there because he'll show you there's something you didn't think about before. Okay? And it's beautiful the way that he does it. We could never finish learning of his love. We're invited to search the depths of the knowledge of God. From Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord that we should be his counselor? That's a real good question. Romans 11, Paul's writing to Jews. Who did the Jews think they were? God's counselor. That's who they came to think they were at the first advent. That's part of how they missed missed the Lord. And the depths. Now, how do you search the depths of the knowledge of God? I know people that say, well, I read the Bible once and didn't like it. Or I read the Bible once and didn't understand it. If you read the Bible once, that's a good thing. If you read it twice, that's better. <laughs> if you slow down and read it and try to understand it, that's much better still. Going back through these these books, like First Timothy, um, it's amazing. It still amazes me the depth of what is in there, and you can just take any almost any verse out of out of the pastoral epistles. 
First and Second Timothy and Titus. And you start looking at how all the theology of the last 4,000 years, Paul is, it's all coming together and what is inspired in those words. It's amazing. And it's so practical. So very practical. How do you, how do you, how do you identify what's mature and what's not? First Timothy chapter 3. And you take 1 Timothy 3, <clears throat> Titus 1, verses 7 to 9, and you end up with qualities. And a lot of people go over and it says, the overseer, he who aspires the office of overseer. It is a fine thing that he wishes to do. And they go, oh, that's for pastors only, and they move on. But then when you take and look at that, you go, uh, yeah, it's certainly for those who hold a position of authority within the church. But would you like to know what maturity is about? If a pastor, overseer, elder, is supposed to be a mature individual, because it clearly says not a novice in there, if he's supposed to be a mature individual, don't you think maybe it describes qualities of maturity for all people? Well, that's just a simple step of, well, yeah, it does. Interpretation, very clear. This is who it's for, those who hold the office. The application, though, is much broader than most people suspect. The overseer is to be above reproach. That means to have no valid charges against them. Valid charges are wrongdoing, valid charges of sin. And that's where it starts. And then it goes on in Timothy to list 15 or 16 more things that all connect to being above reproach. And then you get into Titus, and there's another six or eight different ones in Titus that are added on there. So you got about 22 to 20 to 25 things that are qualities of maturity, being grown up. Wouldn't everybody like to be grown up in Christ? I would hope so. We don't need to remain like little kids. <clears throat> now, we're invited to search Him. How do you search Him? On the surface of the Scripture is a layer of knowledge that I believe unbelievers can get a grasp of. They can understand the gospel out of it. They can understand history. They can understand that Adam and Eve fell, that Noah built a boat. They can understand that Abraham was called to go into a place that God would show him. They can understand basic things. That's the surface layer of the Bible. But then there's, what about what's below that? What are the depths of it? And that's what he invites us to find out about. Because when you start studying Abraham, you find out how great he really was, and you read into all the way into Hebrews, and you find out what a phenomenal individual he became, not what not he was all along. What a phenomenal individual he came to have the faith, to be willing to sacrifice his only son, because he knew God would raise him up if he did, in order to fulfill his promise. Now, how many doctrines did that put together? In Abraham's mind, an old guy that lived in the 1900s B.C., how much theology did that guy know? I'll tell you, a whole lot more than he's given credit for. A lot more than he's given credit for. Because not every part of that had been written down at that time. Now... <clears throat> The 
uh, we're invited to search it. That's where we dig into it. That's where we study the scripture. That's where we really try to find out. And he's invited us. And I've been doing it a long time. And I'm still fascinated by what I see every time I go in there. Because one thing leads to another thing. And it clarifies things as you go. It raises more questions too to keep us studying. It's fascinating. Search the depths of God. He wants us to. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this day, for your love and mercy and grace and for all your blessings and your tests. Father, we thank you for who you are and what your Son did for us and the Holy Spirit that has revealed this this amazing plan to us. Father, I pray that we will indeed be your disciples, that we will be willing to learn, and not just that, but willing to spread your word to all the earth. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.